Welcome everyone to SaaScast, the podcast that talks you through the steps you need to future-proof your product, whether that's building the ultimate marketing team or taking your products global. Our guests will help you grow, scale up and work smarter. Today I'm joined by Jody Chan. She is the uh, Senior Vice President of Product and Partnerships at ChinaFi. Uh, so hi, first of all, hi Jody. Nice to be. Hey, Anthony. Nice to meet you. Thanks <laughs> Good so morning. much for coming on SASCast today. Pleasure. Pleasure is all mine. So before we get started, um, I'm sure our listeners would just love to know a little bit about uh, your journey to your current position, um, what it is about product management that drew you along that path, and what it is that keeps you going down this path. Sure thing. So my path to my current role in my tech company is a little bit non-conventional. I actually come from a background in political science and global health. And obviously that's more the pre-law track, but somehow in meeting different people, I did end up working in tech. And since I started my job in tech, I've actually held various roles in various positions. I mean, anything from operations, I've done work in design UI UX, I've done business development to now partnerships and product management. So I would say that non-conventional path that I took actually allowed me to see various parts of an organization and just appreciate the end-to-end process a lot better. So yeah, that's kind of my long-winded answer to how I ended up in a partnerships and product management role. It's not long-winded at all. I think it's uh, (laughs) we write a lot about in Future of SaaS about how how sort of skills outside of tech are essential when uh hiring people within within the, ta- the SaaS space um because again you you sort of um i feel like if you if you have come from too much of a tech background you maybe can't necessarily see the bigger picture and you can't Absolutely. see the the kind of um the overall business outcomes that are obviously essential with anything that you're working through you know and maybe you can get i think people get too stuck in their little silos don't they you bet you bet and you know what communication styles are different in different teams you know you see a variety in personalities as well so I generally just think it's even better to have a chance to explore different roles within a company if you if you plan on leading within it yeah absolutely and like you said being in, in partnerships as well I feel like that is um working with various different people is essential to kind of develop and nurture that that communication skill that you've got to have when you're when you're dealing with obviously very important clients where there's a lot of money exactly (laughs) always always true always true (laughs) yeah well that's that's fantastic so um today specifically we're talking about we're going sort of back in time a little bit um and talking about a particular time in the uh well i mean which is i'm sure is all fresh in our minds <laughs> just during the <laughs> during the pandemic mm-hmm. uh and i'm really curious about about chinafi during this time because you actually your company actually experienced a lot of growth during this time am i correct yes yeah absolutely it's something i'm incredibly thankful you know I, i'm i wouldn't say that I am shocked by it because, you know, we have the fundamentals in place, but I'm still surprised and pleasantly surprised by the by the growth that we've seen in a time that, you know, uh, from a bigger picture standpoint is was slash an incredibly difficult time. And so you're you're absolutely right. Yeah, that's that's really impressive. And I think it's it's worth talking about now, even though even though the pandemic is obviously, thankfully, uh, the worst part is over. I think it's uh, it's still worth talking about because I think it's important for people to kind of um, understand how we can manage uh, crises 
um, Absolutely. Think, within teams. And I think especially if, you know, we can't promise that there won't be another global crisis again. It's going to present. I wish I could. I wish I could. (laughs) So I think it's worth definitely still worth going over. So can you take us back to the sort of kind of initial conversations and discussion that were happening around that time? What were your immediate priorities when you realized that, okay, this is going to be something that's really going to be a massive global overhaul? Yeah. So, so before I jump into that question, maybe I'll just give a quick background into Chinafy because I think it gives a bit of interesting context yeah, into, yeah. into our role there. So Chinafy is a platform-based solution that helps websites and web applications load fast, fully and securely in China. Mm. Now, the premise behind that is clearly that the Chinese internet and the Western internet have very you know large differences between the two of them. And so naturally, in terms of our product, in terms of the problem that we're solving, we're constantly trying to bridge the gap between two different environments. So when we're talking about the pandemic here, I mean, interestingly enough, um, being headquartered in Hong Kong, having that background where we're interfacing between China and the rest of the world, we are used to a lot of changes, actually, by nature of our company. We're used to seeing a lot of changes firsthand. We're used to having to adapt and to communicate difficult ideas across borders. Mm -hmm. And so interestingly, during the pandemic, it probably just amplified this tenfold, because we were seeing, you know, just turbulence um, around the world, right? And so in terms of your questions about the conversations and discussions that we're having at that time, the pandemic caused instability and fear, I would just, you know, put it simply, you know, as an overarching theme. So from our standpoint, the reaction was to kind of balance that. So to to balance instability, we tried to implement things that would increase our stability as a company. And in order to balance that fear, as a leader, for example, I really tried even more so to be extremely calm in the Mm -hmm. face of this time. So I thought this is pretty funny. I mean, I I think a lot of companies actually resonated and I joke about my part uh, with my partners about this. so the practical action in terms of increasing stability would be to do things that we would normally do in the office, but do mm-hmm. it virtually. Yeah. We have physical morning standups. So actually it ended up being sit downs when we were doing virtually over call, but we would have a standup meeting yeah. every day, essentially within our team. And across the entire organization, we would actually have at least bi-weekly standups where we would have you know, leaders within each, each group um, present essentially the challenges that they were might be facing, the things that they were working on, and just to align everyone and make them feel like we were still on the same page. Right. So, I see. Uh, so that's that's one thing that we did. Um, we also did we implemented you know just a lot more wins like sharing wins over Slack. So yeah. naturally, because we're a cloud company, we already use Slack. We heavily rely on Google Calendar, Confluence, things like that. But historically. For example, developers might not know when we win a really exciting client and a project that we're, we wanted to work on. Instead of you know business as usual, what we would do is we would then implement and share these wins across the organization. So whoever is interested in seeing what good news is happening, by all means, they just tap into the right channel and they get to see that. So yeah. you know that was something we implemented as well. And the immediate priority to, to instill that sense of um, stability and, and calm. and momentum where we could Uh, and I guess one fun thing is we're also 
we have a big snacking culture in our team. So there's almost always a massive pile of snacks in the office and someone very thoughtfully, you know, at one point sent fruits to everyone. And, and we just had a good laugh about that because, you know, we couldn't eat together, but we could try virtually enjoying some food together. Yeah, that's great. I think people underestimate um, the importance of kind of soft skills in leadership with in terms of just, 100%. just building that kind of solidarity between the team. And it's so essential. I think that the leaders of the team other people in charge of this you know and really kind of create that culture from the from the top down absolutely absolutely and and honestly I think it, it just takes a little bit of encouragement you know here and there and as a leader to motivate and inspire because on a personal level I could totally empathize it was an incredibly difficult time for a lot of people I'm fortunately you know I'm fortunate that I didn't lose anyone to COVID but you know there are people who maybe lost someone to the pandemic or, you know, maybe they were struggling with loneliness or something like that. And I think it was important, you know, especially for the leaders to be able to empathize with team members during this time. Absolutely. Yeah. I think essentially, and, and definitely the, the, the fear and the, and the impact that that had on people's um, professional performance, uh, you know, essentially is uh, something that definitely has to be taken into, into consideration as well, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. That's great. So um, were there any sort of significant kind of pivots in terms of like your your kind of strategy during this time? Um, or was was it pretty much just business as usual? Um, I would say it's a combination of that. It's probably not the most straightforward answer that you would lo- were looking for. But yeah. in terms of business as usual, I think what this pandemic actually really showed us is that the product that we were building was more of a necessity versus a luxury good. So that was very informative for us because Mm. I think prior to the pandemic, as with most companies, resources were a lot more and able to be spread out across different initiatives. You know, you could improve things like the website's look and feel, and you could equally invest in marketing initiatives and in-person conferences and things like that. Mm. Whereas, you know, during this pandemic, what we realized is, from an external perspective, we were being seen as a necessity and not a luxury good. And in response to that, in the product development side, that actually caused us to really double down on functionality of the product Um, and and just really improve things that, you know, we, we might have put further down the roadmap and just move them up because we wanted to make sure that our product was really delivering Mm -hmm. and um, support. Actually, we gave a lot more discretion to our support teams to really just go the extra mile for our customers to make sure that we could take good care of them. Um, the, the official word is obviously retention, right? But yeah. I think for us, that was, I would say, a pivot in terms of our internal mindset and how we viewed our product as a team. Yeah. Um, and obviously, because of that, the actions we would take as a team. And I also think it'd be interesting to kind of touch upon pricing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think, you know, your question really made me consider that because in this pandemic, we, I don't know, I personally saw a lot of discounts, a lot of deals on deals. And one thing that we thought of very intentionally was not to do that with our product. Mm-hmm. Um, and and of course it's a risk, right? Because price sensitivity and we were still gathering data and the pandemic really hit companies in different ways. Mm-hmm. But I think as a team, we decided we believed in our value. The product pricing was always fair. Mm-hmm. And so it's something that we kind of 
like I said, deepen the product to increase the value because of what we're offering, but we didn't change it because of the pricing uh, and made and cheapen the way that we would sell. It's we've actually been uh, we we published a, a hub page recently on the blog, Photo oh. uh, Futures Ask blog about about pricing in particular and about the difficulty between balancing. Again, not kind of pricing customers out or potential customers out, but then at the same time, the danger of uh, undervaluing, devaluing your product by providing discounts is a big danger that people are not necessarily aware of, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. And and I think, unfortunately, some people learned the, the tough way where once they lowered the price of their product, it was very hard to bring it back up. Um, yeah. We are seeing that in different industries, right? We're not just talking SaaS. We're seeing that in the, the restaurant industries and and things like that too. So um, yeah, I'm actually, I'd love to read that article. I think it would resonate very highly with me and I'm sure with a lot of people in my community. That's that's really, really great. And I, th- I can understand how that would have happened during the pandemic because I imagine just a lot of people really panicked. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> panic sets in and people just think, oh, let's just let's just offer discounts left, right, and center, you know. <laughs> like, you know but um <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And and yeah. it, honestly, the, the way that you know that I thought about it eventually was you can't really negotiate with a company whose budget is zero. There, yeah. There's not much movement you can do there. So you might as well stick to your guns and offer a really good product and be fair about it in the first place. And if someone is overpricing in the beginning, it really comes through in, in a pandemic or in a, in, in a time of crises. Yeah. And it sounds like to me then going back to what you were saying initially, like the thing that really was the driving force behind this was just um, behind you, not just surviving, but thriving during this time was, was just absolutely. Under- being aware of of the value of your product, consolidating the value of it and having confidence in it, really, essentially. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I actually think our customers really, really respected us for that. And for customers that were struggling, I mean, we do work with a lot of people in the travel and um, hospitality industry. Now, that took a major hit. And our clients are very transparent with us. They They told us that they were struggling in terms of you know, they, what they saw to be a hopefully short-term period. Mm-hmm. And as a company, I think our stance on that is that we're not doing discounts and deals on holds, but what we want to do is see what we can do in terms of, okay, maybe in the short term, we'll structure this deal. But in the long term, these are our customers that they plan on sticking with us for life as long as they survive, right? So, yeah, so yeah. we tried to do what we could on our end um, in a fair way and just restructure something so that maybe we they could they could find a way to make it work within their current restraints so there's a balance to be reached there isn't there between um kind of backing yourself knowing the value of your product but then also being able to look at it on a sort of case by case basis and say exactly. well this is an important client and for this particular person we have to because then the the, the the you're thinking about things like kind of um brand reputation there as well which is really really Absolutely. important right if you if you um during that time if you are uh, known as a company who is not willing to be flexible for important clients, I think maybe that can definitely backfire on you. Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, we have to trust that good clients are ones that are reasonable. They're not going to be trying to milk us during these times and they're just trying to find some ways to keep it working. And so yeah. I'd like to think of people that way in general and it helps <laughs> us live as human beings and as a company. But I imagine, um, you know, through your experience that you've had, you that's one of the important skills you pick up. Again, it's a little bit of a soft skill as well as being able to sense when somebody is is an honest 
client and when somebody is just trying to try to like you said milk you for, for all your words again exactly <laughs> i would say that's where experience comes in <laughs> absolutely <laughs> Yeah. absolutely yeah that's great thank you um so you're also in charge of partnerships mm-hmm. that's as well correct as, as well as products so during a, a global book upheaval like this you know i imagine there's there's just a lot of international coordinating that had to be done being specific to the specific challenges of, of their respective regions the partners you're dealing with can you describe what that process is like for us? Was it a, say, a case of just having to jump on calls every single day with people in various different regions of the world? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Short, simple answer. Yes. Yeah, that was exactly That was the was. simplest answer I could have. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I, I'm, I'm sitting based out of Hong Kong, right? And yeah. a large number of our partners, actually majority of them are not in Hong Kong. And so it is rather common and it still is that you know i'd have calls at 7 a.m in the morning sometimes 10 or 11 p.m at night um and and i know our teams work really hard to to make that happen as well and similarly for our partners so to your question yes a lot of it is just hopping on calls and a lot of back and forth and email correspondences for when the other party is you know sleeping but i think one thing as well in terms of what i was talking about product and reducing you know, we're, we're going for quality and not quantity. And I think that mindset just applied across the organization, including what we did with partnerships. Mm-hmm. Because frankly, we couldn't travel as much to, to just tackle and see many people. And similarly, these other partners that we, you know, that we work with, they were going through internal changes as well. So they were having difficulties of their own and that slowed things down. So we just focused on quality, not quantity. And working closer with the partners that we already had and growing slowly. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for that. So when you, um, go, again, going back to, to the remote work thing and how that impacted partnerships, I want to talk a bit about how that maybe impacted your kind of your teams internally. Um, I, I know a lot of people, so was China Fi, was it typically remote anyway before the pandemic? No. No, it wasn't. it wasn't. That's a really good question. It so was I'm not wondering how how did you handle that? Like, how did you manage every people having to be remote all of a sudden? Because uh, because I, I think this it's sort of like everyone's a bit split on it still about mm. how effective remote work actually is. Some people say, oh no, people are more productive. People are use their time better when they're when they're um, working remotely. What's been your experience of this and and how did you ensure kind of good practices during this time with remote work? I would say that there's probably been two phases in in this exploration of remote work and, and how we've been functioning as a company, because the first phase was really when the whole world was pretty much on lockdown. So mm-hmm. we were forced entirely to be a remote organization from one that wasn't and, and primarily in the office to one that was entirely remote. And I think phase two is where, you know, there were restrictions that were being released. Mm-hmm. And so we could explore maybe a, a com- combined model of pseudo work from home, pseudo work in the office. So in this phase one, the biggest thing we did is we implemented those daily meetings and, you know, end of day updates. I think that was really important to maintain some, some sort of routine and a way for the teams to sync up across the board. And just so everyone has that visibility, everyone has that accountability and just have that sense that we would have, you know, during our, during our office times. 
Um, and then in terms of phase two, what I think from personal experience, and, and I know why people are split on this because frankly, I think these opinions are very subjective. So this is entirely subjective to myself is I, I believe that there are certain roles that and certain individuals that might work better in an office setting with other people while others can kind of function on a pseudo remote basis. Yeah. Um, I personally love in-person time as well. So I do think that it's nice to have times when you can gather as a team and you can do those stand-up meetings in person. You know, you can gather around the, the water cooler. In our case, we're mostly drinking coffee, but you know, you get the idea there. So I think that my opinion is that it really is a case-by-case basis. I see people implementing it across a large organization, but I do think the discretion really should be, you know, among teams mm-hmm. and decided by, you know, that team itself and how, and, and testing how each system works, you know, yeah. A-B I test it. It definitely depends on the type, the kind of organization that you're running, doesn't it? And, and the kind of product that you're putting out there and there's just so many different factors i think that that come into play um during that time and then like you said as well just the the type of the type of person that you are yeah absolutely massive massive part in that and i think that a lot of people have adopted the hybrid model because mm-hmm. there's kind of like people i think most people sort of like their alone time and they yes. like the days yeah. when they're when they're really kind of deep working, and then they also like the days when they're kind of you know um, I suppose touching base with with other other peers about what they're doing, and I think maybe that's that balance because it is important sometimes for some people. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And and frankly, I I believe in everything in moderation, right? So yeah, it, it's nice to have flexibility, and I think it's important to communicate to members who have that flexibility that it's a new working model and the expectation really is you're still expected to perform. That doesn't really change how you're doing your work might change, but the work output that you should be doing has not. It has not. No, absolutely. But then I suppose as a leader yourself, you just still have to make sure that you're not um, kind of neglecting anyone. Right. Because that can be quite easy to do. I think sometimes as, as long as you kind of, if you see like the work coming out of them, and see it still mm-hmm. done. it's it's easy maybe to just not maybe best send them that message on slack in the same way that when you see them in the office you might just say hi how are you today it's harder to to do that when unless there's a crisis so then the, there's the potential where i think the, one of the dangers maybe with remote work i think sometimes is that you're only really messaging people when they've messed up because why else would yes. you to message them so then it's that's a really of, good point it's a case of like people that can be dangerous for morale right because then the person getting message thinks that they're doing badly because the only time they're getting messages is when something's gone wrong um so i think one thing that's really important i think for for leaders to know is that like you it's still important to send people those messages just asking how they are that aren't about work 100 <laughs> percent, 100 percent. i i definitely hope that's what you get because i know you work quite remotely from what yeah, I see. yeah yeah no and no so i'm, draw- I'm drawing from personal experience here actually as a, as a, as a i was remote. about to say that's very specific that's a yeah. very specific suggestion but look this is, I definitely... we, this is what we do on sascast we, we we draw on uh our personal stories this is what we do <laughs> well i'm enjoying these tips i hope you know I'm... whoever listens to this actually will as well that's that's really great thank you so much um so of course I want to sort of ask more kind of general kind of product questions now. You um, bet. One of the because I've had other product managers on the on the um, pod before, 
And one of the things that I've, I've, you've touched on uh, with some of your writings for us and, and things you've spoken about is is the ability to, um, I suppose, not necessarily know, know that you can't necessarily follow that mantra of um, the customer's always right. Um, you know, and I think that is that's something that's really, really hard for a lot of people to adapt to. I think they think that you know, a lot of the time they just have to say yes. So I'm wondering, like, with something like product, where obviously you have to be very, very mindful of um, aware of of customer feedback all the time. How do you um, prioritize customer dump demands and sift out the kind of valuable ones from the ones that maybe aren't so valuable? Mm-hmm. Well, I think the first thing that's important to keep in mind is that these demands and requests are not personal. Yeah, They yeah. might come across incredibly harsh and incredibly rude sometimes. And it shocks me sometimes how, how people can come across uh, just in general correspondence. <laughs> but I think, yeah, the first thing to remember is that it's not personal. Yeah. And, you know, from there, most things are pretty manageable, right? So what I think we do as an organization quite well and, and we continue to improve on is being incredibly transparent with our users. We mm-hmm. clarify, actually, during the course of the pandemic, we also elaborated and provide more documentation about what we can support and what we can't support. And to also clarify that different plans have different support levels. And this is pretty standard just because we don't have unlimited resources. And frankly, some things are within our control and some things aren't. And so we just try to be very transparent about what we can do and what we can't do. Mm-hmm. And so far, that's that's worked, I would say. Um, generally, mm-hmm. customers, you know, if they realize that something is urgent it's because we've already realized that it's urgent as well i mean if it impacts them on a product level we want to make sure that we're delivering our product well so we make an extra effort to make sure those things are addressed even if their support levels are not at that turnaround time or or whatever and so we definitely do that and in terms of prioritizing customer demands and requests we do try to bundle bundle and flag requests. I know a lot of SaaS organizations do this through a ticketing system and we have our own, but essentially what happens is requests are processed internally, it's flagged. And if the requests are similar, they're grouped to be one so that it's increasing in priority, meaning the impact that we have is more scalable than than a single singular case. If there are multiple people asking for a feature and it's something that we can work into our roadmap, we will. If it's a single person that has a very edge case and it's something because, you know, for whatever reason, and maybe their website uses a specific plugin that Mm -hmm. is set on their side, but not necessarily what they have to use. And they ask us to adjust to it. You know, that sort of, that sort of case is maybe one where we have to be transparent and and let the customer know that we might not be able to support it to date. Um, And I, and actually um, maybe this is more of a suggestion but as someone working in product, I find it important and really helpful to hop into direct client calls. So to actually get that direct feedback with the client and just to keep a, keep a hand on the pulse, because otherwise when you're just seeing tickets or when you're just seeing items on a roadmap, you don't really realize the impact it has and maybe patterns that might occur. Mm. So I think that's just a suggestion. I think even if you're in product, it's really nice if you can hop into sales calls and have that interface with a client. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, I think you don't necessarily um, understand the problem and the need for it unless you actually speak to the person very often. If it's just, uh, I don't know, if it's just text on, on a kind of database or whatever, <laughs> and 
as you use, you know, a system, yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> it's another thing exactly. to pick off or, or, or cross, yeah, whatever it is, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I, and I think you can still maintain objectivity when you're doing that. It's just getting yeah. a better sense of the full picture. Yeah, completely. Yeah, I, I completely understand that. So I think that's 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 a really important one, isn't it, is being um, transparent and not over-promising. Uh, again, it kind of yes. goes back to a little bit to the kind of the customer's always right uh, mantra is not um, pretend not pretending that you can do everything. You know, that's absolutely <laughs> true. And you yeah. know what? And to remember, they're entitled to their feelings and their opinions, and they're most of the time valid and stemming from something. Yeah, they might not have the best solution for it, but that's just it's going to exist for as long as you have a SaaS product or any product, really. Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? Because you kind of do want to, you know, you, you can't please them all in the end, but you kind of, you know, we go into this wanting to please as many people as possible. So it is hard Absolutely. I think, to just know that sometimes maybe that, maybe your product just isn't for them in the end. That's maybe fair. Just, yeah, maybe they're just not what you, you know, you're not what they're looking for and they're not what you're looking for. And <laughs> you just have to accept that. In the and end. it's okay. And you know what? We, we, bid them goodbye with a, a friendly goodbye and <laughs> hopefully if they if there's a better fit in the future we'd be open we, we're leaving a door open that, that's yeah. what i'd like to say maybe that's another one then don't close any doors uh say to people yeah <laughs> try to try and keep everything open yeah yeah, yeah. at least on friendly terms at least on friend at least don't burn the bridge yeah don't yes. burn the bridge is a better one yeah burn bridges is yes. a better one yeah yeah great so, I mean, this maybe this is an impossible question to, to answer um, because we, we, no one can predict really what's going to happen, but I'll, I'll take a stab at it anyway. How do you prepare your teams or kind of, I suppose, create a culture where people are kind of adaptable enough to, to, uh, to deal with these crises when they happen? How do you mm-hmm. prepare yourself for them? Because you can't prepare for specifically what's going to happen, but maybe what you can do is cultivate skills where people are sufficiently adaptable. And I don't know if that's a possibility. That's actually, I think your phrasing of it is perfect because (laughs) it's essentially cultivating skills to prepare for crises. But I think the best way to put it is cultivating skills that are just useful, whether you're in a crisis or not. And I think that's the best way because it's for, I, I think of it like, you know, when you have the emergency exit and you know that it's there and maybe you've gone, you've walked past it and you know where it is, yes. but it's not like you have to walk past it every single day, but you, you have the, the framework if anything happens. Yeah. And so I think one thing that I really appreciate about this company that, that we have here is that people often are presenting problems with the solution. So yeah it's very important not to say, "Mm, I find this problem, here it is, throw it at someone else, and then they're asked to resolve it. Mm. I think anyone who's new to the company, they've probably encountered someone who just directly asks them, what's your proposed solution? If you're raising an issue, what's the proposed solution? And and I think getting asked that enough times really makes you think, okay, at least these are some possibilities that I'm thinking of. Yeah. Or if you have sought through the possibilities and are still completely stuck on a no solution, situation than to be able to say that I've thought through these options they don't seem to work these are the considerations and maybe we can get each other's opinions on how to make the situation better so it's cultivating that problem solving skill across the organization on an individual basis 
Yeah, and I suppose that that's a really good point that you made, actually, not just passing the problem along to somebody else, I suppose, yeah. is how can you, when when a problem arises, assess whether you can deal with it first. Yes. Thoroughly, before passing Absolutely. it. Absolutely. That's the thing that happens in companies a lot, actually, especially when people are busy. And, and actually, it is something that they could perhaps solve. And actually, it would be a lot more <laughs> efficient if they just did. But they're just kind of like, no, 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 it's not my issue. It's like hot potato situation. I'll pass the hot potato, you take it. Yeah, that's really valuable, actually, is how that if enough people do that, um, maybe you don't have the kind of team who can deal with a a crisis in the end, collectively, you know, it's... um, Exactly. That's not teamwork, is it? Passing the problem, sorry, passing the the potato along, you know, hot potato. (laughs) Passing the potato. I I, I 100% agree with that. And... And I think that's the same, actually, even for for leaders and in terms of decision making, it's really helpful to have systems. It's so lovely to have routine. It's so lovely to have structure. Mm. But in times of crises, those structures and systems may not be the best thing to be agile. I mean, it's 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 a constant balance, right, between being fast moving and reactive versus sticking to a system and yeah. making sure that things are following those specific set of rules that you might have implemented, right? Yeah. And so that's the thing. It, it's keeping an open mind, accepting that crises mm. are hopefully short term in <laughs> nature and and being able to adapt and just maintain some sense of clarity or, or as best as you can. And this is something I, I suppose that starts um, in the hiring process as well, isn't it? I mean, like you can cultivate these skills, but you want to see when you're I mean, I imagine you've interviewed many, many people. Um, in your current position, it's it's assessing that they are the kind of person who's kind of coachable here. Um, it, do they show the kind of potential to to kind of think on their feet and be adaptable anyway before you take? Yeah, it? absolutely, absolutely. I mean, in the job description, actually, a frequent one that we add is a self starter. Uh, I love seeing it when someone has shown initiative in some regards. I mean, if it's a new hire, maybe it's something that they've done in high school, or if you know, they talked about starting a club or I recent, well, not recently, but some time ago, we had a colleague who started an ice cream business, just kind of on the side and hustled. And, and it, that showed just the ability to be entrepreneurial and think outside the box. And I think that's a really good proxy for how you'll perform no matter what task you have. And so. Yeah, I think that's, um, and that's perhaps something that people wouldn't, uh, maybe people who aren't really experienced in hiring people maybe they'd look at something like that and be like, oh, ice cream business and think, well, what relevance does that have? <laughs> Rather than actually looking into it and being, well, what kind of characteristics and skills does that demonstrate in the person that I'm that I'm interviewing? Because not many people start a business. This is the thing. Like, it's not it's not no. actually really a really common thing in every person. Most people you meet have not done that. Most people oh, you meet a bit of a poise. So just, just meet somebody who's taken a risk like that. Um, I think it definitely always, it always shows something. I think you have to have that yes. entrepreneurial instinct in you, don't you? Absolutely. And, and resilience. My goodness, so much resilience. Absolutely, yeah. And I think that I think you don't you don't meet those people all the time, but when you do, I think there's definitely you notice that they do have kind of a a, a drive and a kind of risk taking. Um mm-hmm. yeah, characteristic again that that I think does does affect other personality. I definitely think the the entrepreneurial person is is a different kind of breed. Yeah. Oh, 100%. <laughs> and, and on that note, diversity is very important. We also love people who are just, you know, operational, secure, stable, not looking for crazy change or 
yeah. as much of a dreamer because I think diversity within a team is incredibly important and yeah. not having that siloed way of thinking. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's that's really yeah, that's really really crucial. I think, and I think with d- diversity, it's essentially to it's essential that we consolidate. I think that diversity is about not just not just kind of different ethnicities and different backgrounds, which obviously is, is important too, but also just different ways of thinking, isn't it? And how absolutely suits absolutely certain positions, um, and and obviously it has to be assessed by the by what you're hiring for, doesn't it as well? Exactly. These demands, yeah. And, and you know what, I think actually a lot of hiring processes, you know, you'll have similar similar steps, right? Because you'll speak to different people. So you might speak to the immediate team leader. You might speak to other leadership or other teams. And, and that actually helps because the people who are working within a company have really good sense about the individual makeup of that company and they might have different insights. Mm-hmm. So generally our interview processes rarely is ever with a single person. That's really, really great. Yeah. That's so you you'll have a, a few different people assessing it when you interview them, is what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's really great. Yeah. So there's diversity actually in the sound kind of baked into the process. Not, right. Not right. Just the people you get. Yeah. Then that's really essential. Well, we try. We try. Yeah, we try. We, we try. try. <laughs> it means yeah, not try. always. It's not always. It's not always a possibility. I know, but uh, we, we try. You know. Yeah. Definitely. I understand that. So this exactly. has been really, really. Um, great Jody um I think it's been really oh, I hope I'm glad to hear that <laughs> it's been great to draw upon your experience I think it's SaskCast we love to not just talk about strategies but also talk about specific stories you know um of examples where people have pulled through and in difficult times I think this is going to really going to benefit our audience um I was wondering if you glad could to just, hear that I was wondering if you could finish um we kind of touched on this a little bit anyway but as somebody who's an aspiring product leader or product manager, maybe if you're listening to this, like what key qualities are you looking for in someone that you hire? Hmm. I think one of the biggest qualities that we really appreciate, though it's very difficult to gauge in the hiring process, is the EQ of a person. Right. I think EQ is an incredibly important and somewhat abstract skill that highly impacts a team, play- well, how well someone plays in a team, right? And so if anyone, you know, has tips on how to filter out people with a high EQ and not just proxy them based on that interview, do let me know. I'd love to learn. But uh, in terms of skill set, I do think high EQ is important. I think a willingness just, to uh, learn. I think we should just unpack that a little bit, actually. Like, sure. EQ is, is that because I'm not sure. Uh, is, that emo- is that like emotional? Emotion like- quotient. Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. All right. Sorry. I wasn't entirely right. sure on that on that phrase. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's actually I mean, it, Unfortunately, it is a phrase that does capture quite a lot, but, you know, you have IQ, intellectual, your intellectual abilities, and maybe how someone scores on a test, but emotional or human, human, human skills, emotional quotient and how people, I I mean, I could probably just Google actually right now what the official definition of EQ is, but I think the people that we work with very well are people who are generally very secure individuals. I mean, they're able to balance their own emotions. They're able to make decisions that are not purely emotion driven um, and to balance that with intellect, because I think intellectual ability almost is a baseline when you're, you know, hiring already, you will look at someone's credentials, you will look at their resume and you will see the achievements that they've had. Mm-hmm. But EQ is something that's quite difficult to gauge, but I think as a leader, you need these skills to be able to manage different people. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I definitely understand. Um, 
the another trait, I mean, if we're continuing on the traits, I think a willingness to learn is really important. Yeah. Just even in a span of one or two years, you might see so many changes in tools, products, hmm. and, and things directly in your in your sphere of influence, right? And so a willingness to learn and stay humble hmm. is really important as a product leader, I think. Yeah. And maybe one last one is I don't know if the correct term is this term, but I, I would say sense making. So it's making sense of a lot of different, you know, you get a lot of information, you get a lot of different opinions and perspectives and being able to make sense and digest in order to give direction is, is an important skill. So on a smaller level, I think that can be practiced actually in, in just reading different sources of news, um, being aware of what's happening around you and, and trying to make sense and digest it. And maybe, like I say, present any problems that you see with the solution. Thank you for joining us on this episode of SaaScast. Please join us next time for more top insights from the leading minds in SaaS.